Hello and welcome. My name is Dr Raj Basord and I'm a psychiatrist working in private practice in Harley Street, London. And I'm here at the Congress for the Royal College of Psychiatrists 2019 and we're delighted to be joined by Professor David Taylor, who's just given a talk at the Congress of the Royal College of Psychiatrists all about how to stop or taper down psychiatric drugs. Uh, professor David Taylor is a professor of psychopharmacology at King's College London. Um, David, in other medical drugs like antibiotics, people just start a drug at the correct dose, they take it for seven days, then they stop. Um, wh why are psychiatric drugs more complicated than that? Uh, well, they, they act in a different way. So an antibiotic, when, when one takes one, um, acts not on the body but on the bacteria. So it isn't altering any functions of the body. Whereas psychiatric drugs, by definition almost, alter the way that the brain works. And in doing so, um, uh, those changes, um, when the drug is stopped, need to go back to how they were originally. And often that takes time um, for the brain to reset itself. So that explains why one of the things you've been writing a lot about recently is that the way people stop psychiatric drugs has to be very different uh, in practice than, than seems to happen in reality. Yes, well, there are two parts to that. The first is that um, we should never stop a, a, a long-term uh, drug which has been used for a mental health condition abruptly, so all in one go. And the other aspect is that we should try to reduce it in a particular fashion which reflects the activity of the drug in the brain. So the relationship between the dose and the activity in the brain uh, is not a linear one, it's not a straight line. And what we need to do effectively is to keep halving the dose um, until we get to a very small dose and then we stop. Um, and in this way we can reduce the amount of activity in the brain by equal amounts with each dose reduction. So although we're halving each time, of course, because we're halving, each successive dose reduction is smaller in terms of milligrams. Is it possible to give me a practical example of a particular drug and a particular dose and how you would reduce it over a period of months? Okay, so if you think about um, the antidepressant citalopram, um, somebody taking 20 milligrams a day, which is a standard dose, if you reduce that dose from 20 to 10 milligrams, you do not halve its activity, you reduce its activity by about 5 percentage points, so from about 80 8% to about 83% of its maximum. So although we, we are halving the dose and reducing it by 10 milligrams, it's actually a very small reduction in activity of the drug. So the next dose reduction would be a halving again down to 5, and then to 2.5, and then to 1.25. And then we might think about stopping if we got to a stage where there are no withdrawal symptoms occurring. And how long a gap would you leave between each halving? That depends on each individual patient. Um, so with after each halving, there's likely to be some symptoms that arise. Once those symptoms have disappeared and the person is settled again, you can think about doing another reduction. So this very low dose right at the end, it seems to me that one of your arguments is people should actually be on that low dose for quite a surprisingly long period of time. Um, when, when we're drawing the drug, um, you should spend rather longer on the very low doses than on the higher doses. As I said in the example, when we go from 20 to 10 milligrams, we're reducing the activity of the drug by a very small amount indeed. 
So sometimes these drugs, like citalopram, are difficult to get hold of um, when you get lower than 10 milligrams. So again, what I do in my practice is is um, space it out day-wise. So the patient would take it every other day, then every third day, then sometimes one day a week. That often sounds a bit odd, um, but w- what are your thoughts about that? I think it's a very good idea. Um, it works much better with drugs which persist in the body for longer than a day or two, so drugs like fluoxetine, Prozac, citalopram, escitalopram are fairly long-acting, and those can be given uh, every other day, every third day, and so on and so forth. Um, some shorter-acting drugs like venlafaxine, um, <clears throat> one tends to see the symptoms of withdrawal emerge once that drug disappears from the body, and it's fairly quickly uh, cleared from the body. So it's difficult to do alternate-day dosing with drugs like venlafaxine, but with those you can do the reduction of the dose and give it daily. Um, so uh, if you're not going to go over the alternate um, day thing, um, there's liquid forms of yes. drugs and then there's pill cutters. Tell us a bit about that. Liquid forms are available for some of the antidepressants. They often have uh, fairly low concentrations, um, so there might be a daily dose in five mils of the solution, so that then you can... Uh, reduced to 2.5 mils, to 2 mils, to 1 mil, to half a mil. And in doing so, you'd be giving very small doses of the antidepressant. Uh, With a tablet cutter, which you can buy from any pharmacy, um, you can accurately cut tablets in half. You can also uh, accurately quarter them. And these tablet cutters have a little tray so that you can collect the the remnant. So if you quarter a tablet and take one piece, you'll have three other pieces which will be more or less quarters which you can take on the next three days. Um, some of the drugs you can't quite get down to the the, the dose, the low dose that you need. Uh, in Holland they have um, they've manufactured a, a series of effectively wafers which have very low doses of antidepressants uh, which are quite widely used but they're not available in the UK. The, the main people who will actually be doing this reduction, practically speaking, will be GPs. Yes. And isn't that a problem in the sense that they don't necessarily have the time or the energy or the expertise to do this very, very slow reduction, which requires quite a lot of monitoring, I think? Yeah. Um, well, the time and energy, I suppose, you can get round by the third um, difficulty, which is the expertise. If the GP... Uh, is enabled to have the expertise, uh, they can pass that on to the patient and the patient can manage their own withdrawal. Uh, after all, it is determined, the rate of withdrawal is determined by the patient anyway. Uh, it shouldn't be set out at the beginning, but should be determined as the patient goes through the withdrawal process. So if the instructions are given to the patient to reduce by half until they feel better for a while and then reduce by half again and keep going, um, then there doesn't need much time and energy on the part of the GP, and if they've been given that information, then they have the necessary expertise. What are we trying to avoid here? Why a, um, this um, very careful reduction? What bad thing are we trying to avoid happening? Well, um, we might think of the fact that you get withdrawal symptoms when you stop a medication as a sign that the brain has not readjusted to the absence of the drug. <clears throat> Um, That has two consequences. The first is that we get these withdrawal symptoms, which are pretty much always unpleasant. Uh, And that's true of of, uh, almost all drugs. And the second is, and evidence is just coming to light about this, that abrupt discontinuation of drugs like antidepressants make 
makes the return of, a, of depression much more likely and it makes the, um, the speed with which that relapse occurs uh, much faster. So you recur, your chances of getting another depression are higher and the chances of getting it sooner are also higher. Um, and these principles, do they apply to all psychiatric drugs like benzodiazepines and antipsychotic medication? Um, I was going to say probably, but it's nearer definitely than probably, uh, but somewhere between the two. From what we can tell, sudden discontinuation of antipsychotics gives rise to an increased risk of uh, relapse into psychosis. Um, we know that about lithium-2 used in bipolar disorder. Um, we know that it's true of particularly short-acting benzodiazepines like lorazepam, even clonazepam, where sudden abrupt um, ceasing of those drugs brings about fairly severe withdrawal reactions um, and heightened symptoms such as anxiety in the days that follow. Um, now, the, the patient often comes and you recommend an antidepressant and then they go, oh, but those are addictive, doctor. Mm. I, I don't want to take an addictive drug. Yeah. So then you kind of try to say, no, they're not addictive in the sense that some of the benzodiazepines yeah. might be. But then you start, they say, well, how are we going to stop it? Then you yeah. start mentioning this long taper and it begins to look like you're really describing a drug that looks like it's dependency inducing. Yeah. So yeah. what are your thoughts about that? Well, <clears throat> an easy answer is that it's a matter of semantics. It depends by what you mean by addiction. But um, one of the things that is lacking from the drugs that we use in psychiatry largely is any sense of craving for the drug. So people tend not to crave antidepressants when they miss a dose, um, that they don't have an immediate effect other than to, to alleviate withdrawal symptoms. Uh, I have occasionally come across people who, who tell me they've craved benzodiazepines, but even that is, is quite rare. So there's a particular aspect of what people think of as being part of addiction that is missing from these uh, therapeutic uh, psychiatric drugs. Another aspect is, um, and this is probably more true of antidepressants and antipsychotics than benzodiazepines, is that you don't um, have to keep increasing the dose to maintain the same effect as you might do with opiates, uh, for example. And also there tends to be um, no instances of what is called in psychiatry drug-seeking behaviour. So people don't prowl the streets looking for Prozac. Um, it, you know, so those, those aspects of addiction are missing. But um, there's no doubt that there are some properties of addictive drugs which are possessed by antidepressants and, and to a lesser extent by antipsychotics. And what are those properties? Well, the fact that if you stop them suddenly, you feel strange and in an unpleasant, in an unpleasant way. And um, the way to, to make those symptoms less frequent and less severe is to withdraw the drug slowly by carrying on halving the dose. What about the way doses are worked out by drug companies? So they'll, GPs are particularly recommended to give the standard dose of an SSRI, which might be 20 milligrams of citalopram. My experience of patients is some people do perfectly fine on just 10 milligrams, for example, and other people need a much bigger dose. And so that this idea that there's a standard dose like an antibiotic, mm -hmm. their the standard dose is handed out there, I think applies less to psychiatric drugs. But what are your thoughts about that? Um, that's a very interesting uh, question. Um, my thoughts are, are varied and, and consist largely of a constellation of, of, uh, of, of ideas and observations. Um, 
One important observation, I suppose, is that the doses of drugs used varies enormously uh, from country to country. So, uh, for example, in, in the USA, uh, people are much more likely to find themselves on high doses of um, SSRI antidepressants, for example, much less likely here. The manufacturers, when they uh, do the trials on a drug, do do, do um, what they call dose-finding studies, fixed-dose studies, to try and find a dose that doesn't work and doses that do work but are no better than low doses which have less severe side effects. And uh, they work quite hard at that, but they almost always inevitably end up with an approximation of the dose range for everybody, which is not precise or accurate for everybody. So you're, you are undoubtedly right in observing that some people respond to a dose which apparently isn't effective according to the book, and others require a higher dose, um, which, according to the book, uh, they shouldn't need. So it, does, it certainly does happen. There's a huge variation in the way um, the body, individual bodies handle individual drugs. Let's talk about that situation to do with America, because I worked in America for a while at Johns Hopkins, and it amazed me as a young psychiatrist to see there were people walking around on 60 milligrams of Prozac, mm. sometimes 80, 80 milligrams. Yeah, that was not uncommon. Mm. So what are your thoughts about that? Um, I suppose you would say that given that the rest of the world can, can manage without those doses, then perhaps they're not needed. Um, but that, that really um, suggests that um, our, our colleagues uh, across the water are doing something that's unnecessary. I, I'm absolutely certain that they are doing what they think is right. And it may be that um, there's some increasing of the dose too much. There's, there's certainly... Um, um, and, and, and I suppose people outside the professions might not expect this. There's, there are certain fashions in uh, drug dosing and drug choice which are country dependent, and it's difficult to go outside those fashions, um, which is why you tend to get people doing all the same thing in the same country. We're getting very defensive in medicine today. So if the BNF or the book says... Um, 50 milligrams is the maximum dose, mm -hmm. and you're on a patient who's begun to respond at yeah. 50, um, you're often scared now as a yeah. doctor to go to 60, much more so than you were 10 years ago or yeah. 15 years ago. Well, actually, sometimes you do need to push past that stated um, higher dose. But I don't know whether you agree with that. Well, we, we have a difficulty in that we have conditions that we don't have instruments and machines uh, which we use to measure severity. So... In order to decide how severely depressed the person is, we have to ask them a series of questions from a questionnaire. And this gives us a very approximate, sometimes misleading view of the severity of a person's depression. Most people with depression would say that the thing they're most bothered about is the, is the low mood. That's the most unbearable thing. And yet that only forms a small part of depression rating scales. There is a group of workers who've looked at data relating only to um, the measurement of mood symptoms on the rating scales. And what they have found is that there is a, a much clearer dose-response relationship for antidepressants on that mood item um, than on the scale as a whole, which means that although authorities like NICE and the BNF say it's probably not worth using more than, say, 20 milligrams of phylloxetine Prozac, actually, if you look at just the mood item you can see a better effect with 40 milligrams.
Now, what about the fact that the standard teaching is you start the drug, you leave a patient on it for six months, mm -hmm. and then you think about stopping it? I mean, and again, in my opinion, some patients benefit from just being on it for a month. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're more prepared to take it if you say you're going to only need this for a few weeks. And sometimes they do fine. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, many patients need more than that. Again, yeah. what about this rigidity around the idea that there has to be a, a set time period that people take the drug for? Well, we, we are basing recommendations on um, observations that were made many decades ago, which is that depression has, quote, a natural course, and that its natural course is six to nine months long. Um, now, I doubt very much that that is the case, uh, that there is a natural course and that it has a particular duration. But we seem to be stuck with that. Um, and that is why there is a recommendation that people are treated for six to nine months after resolution of symptoms. But of course, as you rightly point out, people have different situations. The causes of the depression, the cause of the persistence of the depression may change, may get worse, may get better. So each person needs to be treated for the length of time that they need to be treated for with perhaps one caveat, which is that we should try not to discontinue antidepressants so, too soon, and of course too quickly, but um, too soon. But that's not to say that you know, three months treatment isn't right for some people, because it obviously is. Perhaps a favourite trope around antidepressants is the idea that you tell the patient, we'll start the drug today, you won't feel anything for two weeks or something like that. And again, I find that a profoundly unhelpful statement because when people are really stressed and upset, to tell them we're starting a treatment that won't have any effect for such a long period is a bit disheartening. But also my experience is if they're on the right drug, actually much more rapidly they begin to notice something. They're not cured, but within actually a couple of days, they've definitely noticed a change if they're on the right drug. But what, what are your thoughts about that? Uh, it's a trope and a myth. Um, if you look at the rate of response to antidepressants in people, it's fastest in the first week, second fastest in the second week, and third fastest in the third week. So there isn't a phenomenon of delayed initiation of response. There is a phenomenon of delayed reaching of a threshold for predefined response, which is a different thing up to that threshold, the patient has been improving. So people on the right drug often say that they are noticeably better within a week. In trials where people are given effectively any old drug, because the drugs are randomized, you can identify almost all responders, people who are going to respond by week two, pretty much all of them by week three. And to all intents and purposes, purposes all of them by week four which is to say that if somebody hasn't responded by week three if, he, if there isn't a clear difference noticed by the, the prescriber and the patient then the likelihood of them getting to a stage where they say oh this is wonderful is very small indeed. Now when they start the drug uh, the receptors um, are, are blocked within a very short period yes. of time yet it seems like psychological changes don't occur, there's a gap between the blocking of the receptor yeah. and, and what happens. And I thought, and I may be out of date now, the theory was that maybe protein changes are occurring in cell membranes to adjust to the receptor blocking. And that's really what's causing uh, the, the, the biology of, mm -hmm. of behind the psychology. And that partly explains this tapering thing as well. Yes. Um, could you say something about that? Well, we have spent a lot of time, probably four decades, trying to find... Um, 
plausible biological mechanisms for the delay in antidepressant response. But as we've just been discussing, there isn't really a delay in antidepressant response. I mean, you don't get an immediate response like you would if you were injecting diamorphine, heroin. Um, but um, trials of single doses of antidepressants um, using um, very sensitive techniques can show effects on mood, uh, anxiety, uh, concentration, all sorts of things, a single dose. So there is plenty of evidence to suggest that they do have an immediate, if imperceptible by the patient, effect, and that that uh, imperceptible effect grows to be perceptible over the next few days or week or so. Um, so I'm not really sold on any of the explanations for the delayed response of antidepressants because I don't believe there is a delay in response. And are there any new theories about what is the biological link? What is the biological change? Because antidepressants are slightly misnamed because it's not like we actually know what depression is caused by. I mean, antibiotics yeah. is, where, is where kind of the name came from. There was a, maybe some people say a marketing ploy to call them antidepressants. They, they produce changes in us and those changes can be helpful, but they're not targeting depression specifically. But again, maybe you wouldn't agree with that No, th th there, is a move, there is a move to um, change the way we think about particularly psychotropic medication uh, by, in that we shouldn't, uh, it's said, give them names anymore, but we should describe what they do. Um, so if we take um, uh, SSRIs, they inhibit the reuptake of serotonin in, in nerve cells. That's their activity. To describe them as antidepressants, first of all, indicates that they have a specific action against depression, which they may not do, and secondly, that that's all they're useful for, uh, which also is not true. So if you take another drug like quetiapine, um, that's described as an antipsychotic. It's also an antidepressant. It's the three trials showing it's effective in generalised anxiety disorder, and I could go on. Um, so that's not just an antipsychotic. So there is this movement called the neuroscience-based uh, nomenclature, which seeks to describe drugs by what they do uh, biochemically, um, pharmacologically, rather than what indications they have in the BNF. Professor David Taylor, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.